Welcome to the short concept lecture for topic seven, where we'll be discussing the duties that we owe to other people as legal practitioners. That includes other legal practitioners, third parties and unrepresented people. Many professions have formal professional codes of civility and conduct, but we don't have one for the legal profession in Australia. So, for example, have a look at the civility and professionalism guidelines for attorneys in the Central District of California. You can Google that and have a read. Many of the courts in America also have developed strict codes of civility conduct and professionalism that they require of practitioners when engaged in litigation or work in the court. And this is largely a reaction, I suppose, to a perception for the last 20 years that there has been a decline of professionalism and courtesy amongst legal practitioners. Certainly, Rule 4.1.2 of the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules, as one of the overarching principles, requires that a lawyer be honest and courteous in all dealings in the course of legal practice. Equally, Rule 5.1 requires that practitioners not engage in conduct that's prejudicial to or diminishing the public's confidence in the administration of justice or bring, doing things that might bring the profession into disrepute. But what exactly does that mean? And what does it look like in the context of an adversarial system? In an article that was written by Justice McMurdo of the Queensland Supreme Court, he quotes Chief Justice Spiegelman in 2006, and he says, Civility is not limited to matters of etiquette and manners. The core element of civility is the manifestation of respect for other persons. In the Western tradition, civility has long been accepted as a public virtue manifest in signs of respect to strangers in language, etiquette, and tempering the assertion of self-interest. Civility remains on a daily basis, a display in our courts and throughout the legal system. All legal practitioners must and generally do treat judges, clients, witnesses, and each other with respect. We must all ensure that proper conduct remains a principal characteristic of our uh, legal system and discourse. Ours is a profession of words. We must continue to express ourselves in a way that demonstrates respect for others. End of quote. Perhaps part of the reason we don't have a formal code of conduct or civility that spells out what is and is not discourteous behaviour is that it's tied up, I suppose, with the notion of a fit and proper person, that if you are a fit and proper person to practice law, you will behave civilly and extend professional courtesy. Uh, the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules certainly does have some general overarching principles on the responsibilities of practitioners in the way they con conduct themselves. And it's also important to note that apart from the early rules of Rule 4 and 5, there are a number of specific provisions that particularly impact on how we behave, such as in relation to the giving of undertakings, um, how certain witnesses are to be cross-examined and so forth. And we'll dive into those aspects um, in later stage in this podcast, we'll not only consider the rules that relate to those particular aspects of behaviour, but we're also going to unpack, I guess, a couple of contexts or instances and scenarios where the common law has had to determine what is or is not uh, conduct that meets the Allenson test into in terms of disgraceful and how the disciplinary tribunals deal with discourtesy and incivility. So why does civility and courtesy matter? 
Well, there are a number of reasons. Firstly, it's actually uh, important to the efficient working of the justice system and the administration of justice in the country. It shapes the functionality of the profession, how well we can get the job done. But it also, importantly, also affects um, the respect and the reputation of the profession in the public's eye and therefore the esteem or confidence the public has in the justice system itself. When lawyers behave badly or without courtesy and civility, this reflects on the court system and gives the public an incorrect perception of the administration of justice and its independence. There is little doubt that as a profession, we have inherited implied standards and values that members are required to adhere to. If we look at the Allenson test as a common law test, uh, this is when the common law steps in to consider misconduct cases and considers whether the conduct in question is disgraceful and dishonourable. Now, what disgraceful and dishonourable might look like depends very much on the context and circumstances, and I suppose somewhat of um, the changing situation of the times as well. And that's why it's a peer test as to what would be considered honourable or appropriate amongst fellow members of the profession in terms of the context of a fit and proper person. So let's have a look into some of the permutations of civility and courtesy and how they look like in legal practice. Let's start first of all, number one, with litigation and disputes. Now, litigation and disputes are not about winning at all costs. We are not, as we're very clearly told in Rule 17, the mouthpiece of the client, the hired gun, and so forth. Now, that's completely contrary to what you see on TV and in popular culture in terms of the litigation lawyer persona, where they are the hired gun and cheap shots from the bench is often, and the bar table is often perfectly well accepted. In Australia, though, trial by ambush, um, Rambo litigation and delay tactics meets a very sharp reprobation from the bench and may result in personal costs orders and a complaint discipline-wise against you personally as a lawyer. The bench has significant power in terms of its inherent jurisdiction over lawyers, uh, but also in relation to the civil procedure rules and legislation to discipline parties' lawyers where they are unnecessarily adopting delay tactics or abusive process. One thing to really remember if you are involved in litigation or a dispute for your client is no matter how passionately you believe in the client's position or cause, you have to remember that your job is to remain independent and not to become passionately involved in the case, to give the best of your professional judgment in an independent and unbiased manner. And you have to remember that your professional reputation is going to outlast this particular matter. So how you conduct yourself in this case will be how you'll be known in relation to future cases. And don't consider that you won't come up against the same opponent next time, unfortunately, maybe with a worse case than what you currently have. Poor behaviour invites the disapproval of your colleagues. Consider the case of Beavis and Dawson. It's an old case, 1957. But there the court, in very strong terms, noted that the unprofessionalism and bickering and incivility that the opponents in litigation in that matter had engaged in had actually hindered the court's work and dragged out costs and delay with respect to resolving the case. Courts don't take kindly to this, and as an officer of the court to whom your highest duty is owed, it's really important that you don't engage in this sort of conduct. 
Now, courtesy also includes uh, pre-trial behaviour in the adversarial context. Things such as delay tactics and trolley loading in discovery, which is where you basically overload your opponent by dumping huge quantities of irrelevant material or documentation on them, making them wade through it or expend legal costs they can't afford, is an abusive process and it's simply not acceptable. Rule 21.2 is another example where a solicitor cannot use privilege to make baseless allegations or assertions. Um, and they can only make assertions or suggestions that are supported by the evidence. You must not also make allegations or submissions of fact, in even in without prejudice correspondence, um, that are designed to deliberately embarrass, intimidate or harass a person. Now, Mr. Justice McMurdo notes, civility and professional courtesy promote a type of discourse which is more conducive to the effective resolution of legal conflicts both in and out of court. And absolutely, that is my experience also. Treating other practitioners particularly with respect rather than derision is far more in the interests of your client because it facilitates an earlier resolution of their case. When you're in court, incivility and aggression or belligerence is counterproductive. We all like to see some pretty vigorous cross-examination and putting someone to proof, but there is a very fine line between doing your job adequately in that regard and being aggressive unnecessarily or belligerent. The Solicitor's Conduct Rule at 21.8 prohibits the badgering or deliberately confusing or intimidating witnesses in cases of sexual assault, sexual indecency and indecent assault. But it doesn't say anything in relation to this sort of behaviour with respect to civil matters. Um, and really, though, even though the rules are silent in this regard, the same principles do apply. Again, Justice McMurdo says, insofar as court advocacy is concerned, incivility is never conducive to persuasion. In over 30 years of appearing in or conducting courts, I have yet to see that rudeness makes a difference to the winning of a case. Very wise words. The next principle or point, I suppose, that is worth noting is uh, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, this is actually taken from the Bible in Proverbs, and there's a lot of wisdom that still exists in these words. This is particularly the case in negotiations or in statements of fact. Now, as an agent of your client, you are legally bound by the representations that you make to third parties and other people. Your client can be sued for breach of contract if the obligations that you commit them to are not honoured, regardless of whether or not you had instructions to do that at the time. Trying to use or abuse without prejudice negotiations in this regard can lead to disciplinary complaints. Candor matters. Being truthful in both uh, informal negotiations that are without prejudice together with formal uh, matters such as submissions in court and so forth and correspondence really do um, matter. In this regard, have a look at Rule 22.1, which provides that you must not make a false statement to your opponent. That means stretching the truth, exaggerating or bending the rules. Rule 22.1, um, sorry, 22.2 also makes it clear that this is a continuing obligation. Now, if you'd like to see what that looks like, sometimes silence can be misleading your opponent as 
is lying positively or asserting things that are untrue. A great case to illustrate this is the matter of the Legal Services Commissioner of Mullins, a disciplinary matter that concerned both a barrister and a solicitor in 2006. Now, what happened in this case was that uh, Mr Mullins was representing an injured plaintiff in relation to personal injury proceedings. He was instructed by a solicitor who also was the subject subsequently of disciplinary matters as well. Um, the client had been injured and they were trying to resolve the matter in a settlement. The matter went to mediation and at the mediation it became apparent that um, all of the expert reports projected the loss of the plaintiff for damages based on a normal life expectancy and the expert reports were premised on that expectancy. The plaintiff client revealed to his barrister and solicitor that he had been given a very serious um, terminal cancer diagnosis and that diagnosis was obviously a material fact and highly relevant when quantifying damages because if you remember your tort law, future economic loss, future care requirements would be significantly reduced by the vicissitude of the fact that sadly he wasn't going to live for as long as what they thought. And that's a matter that really should have been openly disclosed to the insurer who was on the other side of this matter. Well, in consultation with the client, Mr Mullins and his instructing solicitor decided, the client said that they didn't want this disclosed unless it was absolutely legally necessary. And Mr Mullins decided that provided he didn't make positive assertions or submissions in the mediation about the life expectancy, that he could carry on his merry way, uh, tender the expert reports and rely upon those and say nothing. Well, it didn't go well because subsequently the insurance company found out that they'd been misled and that the life expectancy was much less than what uh, they had represented in the expert reports and a complaint was made to the Legal, Legal Services Commissioner. That complaint was found substantiated. He was guilty of professional misconduct and he was also fined $20,000. His instructing solicitor also was disciplined for staying silent and watching. So as you can see, being truthful and forthright is actually very important. And that doesn't matter whether it's in alternate dispute resolution, without prejudice discussions, or in court. Professor Del Pont has noted that although the rules don't go far, as far as explicitly address, addressing conduct during negotiations, um, many practitioners believe that where they're bargaining, they can lie or misrepresent and be aggressive. Now, whilst it is true that the only rule referring to negotiations is Rule 22.1, the spirit and intent of the conduct rules clearly indicates that solicitors must conduct themselves with candour at all times. That's regardless of whether it's a without prejudice conversation or not. Now, interestingly, in West Australia, after the Mullins decision, a guideline was issued that uh, noted all negotiations are to be treated no differently in practice um, to any other type of uh, candour requirements and the same ethical standards are required. No such guideline exists in New South Wales and this is a matter that the Australian Law Reform Commission has noted warrants reform. It is true that lying in negotiations is unlikely to come to the attention of disciplinary tribunals precisely because it would probably warrant uh, disclosure of <coughs> confidential and without prejudice communication. But it's important to remember, as I said before, your reputation outlasts this one case and the candour and integrity with which you act in matters will be remembered and spoken of professionally. It should also not be assumed that conduct in negotiations won't come to light subsequently or have legal consequences. If you mislead, 
you may be sued in tort or contract, and you most likely will be disciplined in a disciplinary tribunal. The other dimension of civility and courtesy is, this is an interesting one, how we speak of other practitioners and the bench. The legal profession actually is a small community, particularly when you specialise in a particular area and you get to know other practitioners and judicial officers quite well. What you say about and to other practitioners has a way of carrying. Therefore, keep civility and courtesy foremost in your mind and your tongue, and perhaps learn not to verbalise any negative views of your opponent or of the bench. Consider the judgment in the matter of Garrard and Email Furniture Proprietary Limited, where it was noted that lawyers that seek to win momentarily an advantage for their clients without observing proper courtesy invite the disapproval of their colleagues. Disparaging or offensive language to opponents, clients or third parties, both in court and in your personal life out of court, is also really unprofessional and unacceptable. Consider the case of the unnamed lawyer in 2018 in July, who was disciplined by the tribunal for professional misconduct because he drunkenly gave a false name to police at a train station when asked to move on and swore. The tribunal stated in that judgment, the grounds were made out with the tribunal holding that the solicitor's interaction with police could fairly be described as lacking honesty and integrity and objectively dishonest by the ordinary standards of reasonable and honest people. Or consider the case of Baker and the Legal Services Commissioner of the Queensland Court of Appeal in 2006. There, a solicitor's conversation with their client was the subject of the complaint, and that conversation was littered with expletives where he called the client, amongst other things, an effing moron. Now, clients can sometimes be really difficult, but no client deserves to be spoken of that way or spoken to that way. Now, this is an obvious and shocking example of a breach, but you might be surprised to see that discourtesy and name-calling that does not involve swearing is also considered unprofessional conduct. Consider comments that were uh, made during submissions by a legal practitioner to a magistrate in a family law matter who was subsequently disciplined in the matter of Turley. Uh, The solicitor submitted to the court, and I quote, one has only to go through what the department has said and what appears in newspapers to see that one cannot trust the department. It is almost staffed by animals and that the children should be returned to my client and not put in the hands of these people who are almost like a coven of witches, unquote. This warranted disciplinary approbation and so how we speak or characterise people is important independence, objectivity, it's critical. As we can see, speaking and behaving with dignified restraint at all times is important. Law is stressful. Competing demands and difficult clients make it very difficult sometimes to practice. Sometimes clients can be downright unreasonable and irrational. Learning to balance your professional responsibility with appropriate supervision good mental health and knowing when to take a break is actually key in maintaining your integrity and your self-control. It's worth reflecting on this now while you're a law student before you get into the cut and thrust of what it's actually like in practice. Let's now talk about honesty. We have touched on this but it's another uh, aspect or dimension that I'd like to talk about. It goes without saying that honesty in dealings with other lawyers and parties is absolutely vital. 
This can be challenging in a number of ways and it can be quite subtle. I mean, lying to the court or to an opponent is very obvious and is one thing, but it's a different matter, isn't it, when you're negotiating a resolution of your client's case with your opponent and you are putting the client's evidence and the client's position in the best possible light in order to maximise their case. Now, whilst presenting the client's case as best as possible is one thing, lying about the evidence you may or may not have is an entirely different matter. Consider Rule 22.1 again. You must not make a false statement knowingly to your opponent. People and other practitioners do rely on lawyers' statements and lawyers do have quite a position of power and authority in the general community when they speak. To fail to adhere to your word is unprofessional. So, for example, if my opponent is running late to court and telephones me asking me to mention his appearance and have the matter stood down in the list until he arrives, I should either politely decline this request explicitly, although really extending the courtesy is advisable, or I should do exactly what this person has requested if I have agreed to do so. What I should not do, though, and what is discourteous and almost false, is to simply appear and to pretend I don't know what's happened to my opponent, allowing the court to deal harshly with him because he's running late. If I tell another lawyer I'm destroying um, a documentation or communication that has been inadvertently sent, but I don't destroy it until I've made a copy of it or shared it with another, I am effectively lying and I'm behaving unethically. Dishonesty can sound in contractual and tortious consequences, and it can also be a breach of the conduct rules from which disciplinary proceedings will follow. Now, let's just talk about relationships with third parties. Whilst it is correct that usually a lawyer will not owe a contractual duty to a third party, except in um, unusual situations, as we've seen in tort law, where you might owe the beneficiaries of a will a duty, um, nonetheless, even though there may be no tortious duty of care, solicitors have to be very careful when they're dealing with unrepresented parties and avoid creating in that party an impression that the solicitor is acting in their interests or giving them legal advice. In the Legal Practitioners Complaints Committee and Fleming 2006 decision of West Australia, a solicitor was disciplined because they were acting for an estate that he had um, secured a covenant from interested parties in the estate not to challenge the will. Now, to secure the covenants, the solicitor had conveyed to the parties to the will that it was uh, legally unable to be challenged when the reality was, and he knew full well, that the will hadn't been properly executed. So he basically misled and was quite false with these third parties. Now, the client had requested the solicitor to make these misleading and false statements to the third parties because the client would benefit under the will being upheld. The court found that the solicitor should never have acted on these instructions from the client and acted in a way to mislead the third parties because this was unethical. The solicitor had kept the true state of the will a secret, positively representing it was valid, and obtained the other party's consent to the covenant on false representations. The court noted in that judgment that honesty, fairness and integrity in negotiations are vital because it is conducted out of the control of a judge and an impartial adjudicator. Another aspect that should be noted in dealing with third parties is communicating threats to unrepresented parties or overstating your client's legal position. 
Now, frequently prior to litigation beginning, particularly in civil law, lawyers write letters of demand on behalf of their clients, putting the parties on notice of the dispute and seeking redress from them. And that's perfectly appropriate. Lawyers are required in doing that, though, to maintain professionalism and courtesy in all communications. And the communication should be clear, forthright, but never abusive or threatening. Threats should never be made that you do not intend on delivering on and that are only legally valid and enforceable. Consider the disciplinary outcomes in Legal Practitioners Complaint Committee and Warburton, a case from South Australia. And this is on page 200 of your text. Here, a solicitor really abused their position of power with a third party that was not legally represented. It was a family law resolution of property, and the solicitor was dealing with the estranged husband to the proceedings who was not legally represented. It was a pretty dreadful case in terms of um, the solicitor abusing a position of power in order to advantage their client and suggesting threats that were not at all legally enforceable. Now, whilst you might indicate that if a demand you're making is not met, that you'll seek your client's instructions to commence proceedings, that's okay, but you can't use this as an empty threat and you really must have clear written instructions from your client that you actually are going to commence those proceedings and that means, therefore, that the client actually has reasonable prospects of success and you've thought about your obligations before commencing. Um, Also, too, it means resolving, uh, having exhausted alternate dispute resolution. Um, A solicitor's conduct rule 34 is directly relevant here and it says a solicitor must not in any action or communication associated with representing a client make any statement which grossly exceeds the legitimate assertion of the rights or entitlements of the solicitor's client and which misleads or intimidates the other person. So inflating the amount that you're claiming for the client, that's not right. And also threatening or um, making threats that you don't intend to follow through on, again, is a breach of those conduct rules. You can't also threaten the institution of criminal or disciplinary proceedings against another party if it's a civil debt or civil liability, because obviously that remedy is not entitled uh, to the client and therefore is a false assertion. You also can't use tactics that go beyond legitimate advocacy, which are primarily designed to embarrass or frustrate the other person. So this uh, begs the question, well, can you threaten to disclose non-payment of a debt to the media? Well, the answer is yes, you can. But before you do this, you've got to think about the ethical implications of doing so and taking matters to the media. Great caution has to be exercised and trial by media often never goes well. The overarching requirement to act with courtesy and to not denigrate the reputation of the profession must prevail. Trial by media quickly gets out of your control and you can't control what is said or what is done. It's fraught with ethical issues and frankly should be avoided at all costs. What about confidential communications? Well, We've detailed the clear obligation towards maintaining confidentiality in previous topics, and we're just going to now consider the ethical and professional responsibility rules about what happens when another practitioner inadvertently discloses confidential information to you. This comes under the courtesy and dealing with other practitioners aspect, because believe it or not, this happens all the time. In a world of emails and electronic communication, the risk of attaching the incorrect document or forwarding an email that shouldn't have been sent is high. What are your ethical obligations if you receive something that's clearly not intended for you? 
Well, Rule 31 of the Conduct Rules explicitly deals with this situation. The rules make it clear that if you receive something not intended for you, your obligation is not to use it, but to notify the person disclosing about what has occurred and to return or destroy the material to them immediately. You can't use that material for tactical advantage or for your client in court. Indeed, you can't even show a copy to your client. In addition to this, the referring um, to the communications that were without prejudice or that are privileged is also misconduct. So, for example, you can't refer to or tender documentation that's part of a private settlement negotiation outside of the court because that's subject to without prejudice privilege. That can only be waived with the consent of both parties to the negotiation. Attempting to argue that privilege has been waived when a confidential document is accidentally sent to the wrong recipient is usually unsuccessful. And strangely enough, if you have a go at doing this, you might actually be um, disqualified from acting in the proceedings if you're not careful. Have a look at Selenese Canada, Incorporated and Murray Demolition Company of 2006. Finally, a word on undertakings. Now, undertakings are something that you'll come to learn are very serious and very important in legal practice. In fact, a lot of commerce and trade is done on the basis of undertakings. It rests on the integrity and honesty of the lawyer and their word. By definition, an undertaking is a promise, either written or verbal, to do or to not do something. Because undertakings are relied on by other practitioners and by parties, breaching an undertaking can have very serious legal and professional discipline consequences. The Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules details undertakings at Rule 6. It says if you give an undertaking that requires your client to act or cooperate, you have to be very sure that you can ensure that you have those instructions to do that and that the undertaking is able to be honoured before you give the undertaking. It's for this reason that Rule 6.2 exists, prohibiting undertakings that rely on the cooperation of third parties. You can't promise that a third party will do something if you haven't actually got their agreement to do that. Let's consider the circumstances in which you might give an undertaking first. In 2018, Mr Petrovic, the principal of Liverpool firm New South Wales Compensation Lawyers, gave an undertaking to a client's previous lawyer that he would advise that lawyer once a settlement or judgment had been reached for their former client, and he undertook to pay that former solicitor's reasonable costs and disbursements on completion of the client's matter. So you had a client changing lawyers, and this is a pretty common thing that happens where an undertaking is given about costs. Now, Mr Petrovic didn't follow through on the undertaking. He did not uh, advise that the matter had been resolved and he did not pay the former solicitor's costs and disbursements. He was reported to the Legal Services Commissioner and in disciplinary proceedings brought by the Law Society, the solicitor was found guilty of professional misconduct. He was fined, reprimanded and ordered to pay the Law Society's costs. His practising certificate was not suspended because it was found to be an isolated incident and because he cooperated with the Law Society. But it just shows that undertakings really are taken quite seriously. Or how about consider the disciplinary proceedings in 2018 against Barrister Patrick Lott. He was found to have breached an undertaking that was given to a federal circuit court and to have made misleading and false statements to that court. Really bad idea. Mr Lott undertook to provide to the court a case outline the following morning. He failed to do so and made several statements about when he would provide information that were misleading and not adhered to. 
So failure to do what you have undertaken to do when it's a court context is actually contempt of court and it's a breach of an undertaking. Now, courts have the power to order solicitors to abide by and to perform their undertakings, and they also have the power to arrest you for contempt. Well, the Bar Association certainly thought so, and Mr Lott was found guilty of unprofessional conduct and formally reprimanded. In handing down its findings, the court said, In our view, a reprimand should bring home the seriousness of giving an undertaking to a court and the care which must be taken by members of the profession as to the accuracy of statements made to judicial officers. The failure to keep or honour an undertaking is not only a breach of the conduct rules and thus a disciplinary matter, but it can also result in an action for breach of contract, misleading and deceptive conduct, which can amount to civil proceedings seeking compensation, or an order of specific performance of the undertaking. The court retains supervisory jurisdiction to order solicitors who breach undertakings to pay compensation to a party that's affected. And if an undertaking is made to the court, failure to keep that will result in contempt of court, as I said a moment ago. In this regard, see Al Kandari and J.R. Brown & Co. of 1988 and National Australia Bank and Bond Brewing Holdings. Also, Law Institute of Victoria and Nagel. Because the courts retain inherent jurisdiction over solicitors and barristers and their right to practice, the court insists that its officers abide by the highest standard of conduct and honour their undertakings. As noted before, the court can and does enforce undertakings and can order compensation. It should be noted that if you give an undertaking and you fail to honour it, you're open to civil liability and you're open to disciplinary outcomes as well. Now, the final part that I wanted to address in this short podcast is the recording of conversations. Very tempting sometimes, that's for sure, but nothing should be done. In this regard, whilst there's nothing in the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules on recording conversations, this is very much unethical behaviour, unless it's with the consent of the people who are being recorded, and it is very clear the basis on which you'll be using that recording. Now, it's unethical for the following reasons. Firstly, the law actually prohibits you from recording conversations without consent. Have a look at Section 7 of the Surveillance Devices Act. And we know a solicitor's duty is to uphold the law. So breaching that section of the law is a real no-no. But the second aspect is that it's just unprofessional and discourteous to do so. Now, I have heard of situations where solicitors' clients have wanted to record uh, conversations and give those to their solicitors, particularly in employment uh, contexts where there's a dispute with an employer. Again, your client breaching the law this way by covertly recording conversations is something you should not be a party to and nor should you use any recording or encourage a client to do so. These principles also inform how we go about communicating with others. Should you, for example, put someone on speaker without telling them you're doing so and without their consent so that others in the room can hear what that person's saying if they're unaware they're on speaker? Well, there mightn't be any law about that, but again, it's conduct that is unprofessional and it may see disciplinary findings. Now, whilst there are many conduct rules and sanctions involved in this topic area, it's vital to remember that you act, if you act cautiously and with integrity, you should be fine. Watch your speech, your temper and your communication. Act with self-control and if you can't, you need to remove yourself from a situation. Honour your undertakings and don't give them unless you're absolutely certain you can perform them. 
Your word is important because that is the trust that the profession stands on and it is the measure by which your peers in legal practice will assess you. Professional reputation, believe me, takes years to build and only one bad incident to completely topple down and destroy. It's better for you to lose one case and retain your integrity than it is to compromise your entire professional reputation. Lots of things to think about. I hope you can reflect on this. Thank you for listening.